church. Just stand and worship with us. Hey, good morning, everybody. Stand as we open in worship. Oh God, the battle 
Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? It's good to see you. Bunch of good-looking folks here at Sunset Hills. Thanks for being here this morning. Those of you who are members and regular attenders, don't we count it just a privilege and a pleasure to be together on Sunday mornings like this, to be able to worship together? Um, it's such a good way to start your week, I'm telling you. Um, it's why I think one of the practical reasons that the Bible would say, don't forsake the assembly. It's because it's a great way to start your week out to be able to go into this next week because I'm sure some of you have had one of those weeks that you just had, right? It's one of those tough weeks, maybe one of those hard weeks. And we just want to be able to be honest and transparent and come before the Lord, be able to give him our worries, our anxieties, our stresses. And we want to let you know as pastors, Pastor Steve, myself, Kelly, we want to let you know that you're just welcome to be who you are here. This place right here in front of us is like a makeshift altar for you. There'll be times that even if you want to express that in prayer, please don't hesitate. However, the Lord is moving on you. Now, if you're new with us, you can text hi to that number right there. We'd love to connect with you in some way. If you've been newer with us for a little bit, please connect with us out at the connect table outside. We have some information we'd love to give you. We'd love to give you a little bit of things that are going on because if you got a bulletin and you went to the back side of that bulletin, there's a lot of stuff going on this fall. We've got retreats and everything that we'll mention to you at the end of a service. So let me go ahead and read something to you before we get back into worshiping. And it's something that I think is really cool because as I was listening to some of the Psalms, I don't know how many of you guys really enjoy just getting into the psalm. I hope you do because it's so just so down to earth for us. You can just relate to it. This one relates to our time here, Pastor Kelly. It says, I will sing steadfast love and justice. When we get together, we get to raise our voices about the justice and the love of God. And then it says, to you, O Lord, I will make music. And it's wonderful when you have a band that's able to pull things together to lead a congregation in singing about God's justice and his love for his people and for the people he wants to reach. He wants to reach more people, folks, and he wants to use this church to do that. So I just want to pray with you as we continue to worship and that you would just give your heart to worship. Let's lift the roof off this place. It's a brand new roof, by the way, on the top. So let's lift it off and we can replace it again, perhaps. Maybe not. All right, Father God, thank you so much for just bringing us into the house today. Men, women, boys and girls, young and old, Father, thank you for doing that very thing. That was your work. You've, you've already known, you've known ahead of time that this would be an assembled group here. Those who are here, Lord, we thank you. For those who are watching online, Father, we thank you for them as well that they would know that this church loves and adores the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we want it to make an impact and a difference in people's lives, ours here as well as everybody else that we would come in contact with. So as we worship you, Lord, the Lord of justice and of love and of mercy, may we sing and make this joyful melody with our voices. Thank you so much for the worship team that leads us into corporate worship this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, I'm so thankful this morning that the same God that David and Jacob and Abraham and Mary served and prayed to is the same God that we can call on this morning. I'm calling on the God of Jacob whose love endures through generations. 
just to be able to give this offering of worship to you, almighty God. As we enter into this time of spoken word, Lord, speak to our hearts, anoint these words that Pastor Steve will share with us. Lord, we'll promise if you speak to our hearts that God will respond and we'll be obedient. God, if you call us to prayer, Lord, you call us to salvation, you stand at our hearts door and knock Lord my prayer is that we would just answer here today Lord as we put all of our attention and focus on you your word for our life today let us bring glory to you in everything that we do we love you and we just ask these things in your son Jesus name Amen you may be seated this morning 
morning, Sunset Hills. Good to see you here this morning. There truly has been a great deal taking place around here uh, this past week. Um, new roof, as Eric mentioned, has been placed on, on this building as well as the white building down the way. And I, I was amazed as I was watching, they actually tore the shingles off the old roofs and re-shingled everything and had it done in two days time now that's amazing if you've also noticed the parking lot continues to make progress they've been doing landscaping this week and uh, I think it's tomorrow that they will start paving and have that all ready to go and get it here so next Sunday you'll be able to park on there without having to go over any bumps or anything of that nature okay so you know what we should be doing already is praying that all of those parking spaces will be filled up, right? Wouldn't it be cool to see that, that that begins to happen? We see the parking space. I would love for us to have to start parking on the grass again, you know, because we run out of parking spaces. So you pray for that. If you were here this last week uh, or watching by live stream, I, I titled my sermon, When Good is Bad. It's a play on words of opposites. The premises was that God can bring good into your life out of bad things that happen, like struggles and pain and trials. They can be opportunities to intentionally reframe the way you think about a particular trial that you're encountering so that you not just count it as an experience to go through, but it becomes joyful. It becomes an opportunity for joy itself as you experience it because you're able to trust and live in the person of God and to see him at work in your life and in the lives of others. Today, I want to use the same four words. Four words. That sounds like a good sermon series, right? Four words. Except I'm going to change them around from when bad is good to this. When good is bad. When good is bad. Say what? You know, you might think, be thinking, well, that's not possible. You know, good is, is always good, right? So how do you preach a sermon on good becoming bad? Well, hang me with me for a few minutes and you'll find out of a time when good wasn't so good. In fact, the good that was done made a person really sad as we will see this morning at the end of the story about this rich young ruler. You may be catching on already, right? If you want to turn your Bibles, turn to the Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. That's the account that I'm going to be reading from, okay? Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired, Jesus replied. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, 
Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have the treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, let that sink in for a second. When he heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Again, would you join me in prayer? This Father, we do come to you. We ask that you take these words, this, this, this story, a true account of what happened with a man who, who chose to do other things rather than make you the priority in life. We pray that you just speak to us this morning through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit through your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this account must have been pretty important because the other two other gospel writers decided that they would record it. And if you were, we just read from Matthew 19, Luke 18 records it, also Mark chapter 10. The man appears to have it all. Matthew kind of says he was a young man. Luke tells us that he was a ruler, probably a ruler of a synagogue. He was one who would have had administrative authority. He was a leader. He was an official. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us that he was wealthy. So he's rich, he's young, he's successful, and people would have looked up to him. In today's standard, it would appear that this guy's got it all together. He's somebody that people would look up to and like to be much like. And there's a great deal to encounter as we consider uh, this encounter between this man and Jesus. In the story, if you read through all the accounts, there are several different types of questions that have been asked or, or sayings that, that we have become very familiar with in the Christian world, for, such as the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life or the, the saying go and sell Jesus says everything give to the poor follow me if you read in other versions later or in other accounts it says easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God as Jesus would say and then Jesus would also say, also say a, a rich thing that that we have used many many times what is impossible with man is possible with God some really cool things that we find in this encounter with this rich man. And we're not going to cover all of them. We don't have time. Just a few of them. We won't deal with, we'll deal with just a few statements. But in this way, we can really discover that this rich man is much like us. Maybe not in having wealth, but in attitude where we want life. We want all that life can give us like he does. He's confident in what he's already gained. He's putting a lot of hope and, and effort into becoming a good person. In the eyes of the people of his day, he has done it right. He would be even considered a good person today. But something must be still missing in his life. Even though he had much, he's still concerned about life after death. So we pick up, and we're going to 
kind of break these verses down that I just read and look at the first one. Chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Seems that this guy has a, sur- a sense of urgency about trying to get to Jesus before he leaves town. It's his chance to ask a question, to meet Jesus face to face. He runs up to him in his fine clothes, and he actually falls on his knees in the dirt before him. He's throwing off this picture of urgency, of earnestness and humility. And there's a lesson here for us. There is a sense of urgency, or there should be, that should exist in all of us. Not so much that life is about to come to an end, although we know it could at any time, but there ought to be in the church today, at Sunset Hills, a sense of urgency that is, that is, really, that is very realistic in the sense that we, as a country, as a culture, are becoming more and more godless. And because we are heading in this direction away from God, there should be a sense of urgency within the church that we should be doing a much better job of trying to tell people about Jesus. There is a reality that the more godless we become, the more difficult it seems for us to be able to reach others for Christ. A turning away of culture from anything that is about Jesus, especially when it comes to surrender and sacrifice. I believe that there ought to be a sense of urgency like never before as people are becoming more and more callous to the gospel. The end result will... Let's just think about it for a second. The end result means that multitudes of people, when their life comes to an end, will be spending eternity apart from God. There ought to be a sense of urgency about that. So this man, he rushes to Jesus in this sense of urgency. And he asks an important and a very honest question. Not like some of the others who had the same kind of background that he had, being a part of the synagogue, a leader of the religious folk. They were always asking questions that would be an entrapment to Jesus, like, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Or, uh, why do your disciples go out and pluck grain on the Sabbath? They're trying to uh, trap Jesus. Uh, The lady who's caught in adultery, remember that group that were there? And, you know, what do we do with her? Um, Shouldn't we stone her as Moses directed us to do? All questions of entrapment. But this man's question is different. He's not trying to trap Jesus. 
It's a sincere question to which he wanted to truly know the answer. How do I inherit eternal life? And by his question, you can surmise that he's very interested in spiritual matters. Because he could have chosen a lot of other types of questions, but he chooses this one. What's going to happen after I die? I think it's a question a lot of folks, even today, wonder about. I'm not so sure that they give a great deal of serious consideration, at least initially on the surface, but I do believe it's something that people want to know about. What's going to happen when this life is over? It's interesting to me that because Americans, Americans, by and large, believe in heaven. You might find that a little bit surprising, but they do. They believe in heaven. In a recent Pew Research poll, nearly three-quarters of U.S. adults say that they believe in heaven. Now, what the survey doesn't really go into is what is their idea of heaven? While most adults, U.S. adults, believe in heaven, most of them still believe in hell, but it's less widespread than in believing in heaven. Roughly 6 in 10 American adults, 62%, say they believe in hell. So most people in America believe that there is a heaven, and others believe that there's a hell. In a CBS poll, among those who believe in both heaven and hell exist, 82% expect, watch this, it's almost scary that people think this, three-quarters of American public believe in heaven. Of those who believe, 82% expect to wind up in heaven at the end of their lives. My question is, where are they today? In church, right? 2% say they expect to end up in hell. 9% don't think they'll end up anywhere. And there's still some that's left that they just don't know what they think. So many of the 82% that expect to wind up in heaven is just like this guy in the story who is confused on how to get there. And I think that holds true in culture today. It's a question that we should pay serious attention to. Really pondering, wandering, concerned enough of whether or not we as a church cares about where people will spend their eternity. It's a serious question. Do you believe that there's life after death? I'm just wondering where you are this morning. Do you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and that people are going to spend their eternity there after they die? Let's just say for a moment that you don't. Maybe you're one, maybe a few in here probably that might be thinking that, that you don't really believe that there's a heaven and hell, that 
What there is in this life is it. It's over with after that. I say to you, that's a big risk that you're going to take just in case you're wrong. Because our eternity is a long time. We can't even measure it. Now let me propose this to you. Jesus confirms in this conversation that there is an eternity. In Luke's narrative, when the man asks about eternal life, Jesus doesn't correct him by saying, Eternal life? What are you talking about? There is no life after this. No, and rather, Jesus allows the questions, inferring that eternity of life is confirmed. And then Jesus goes on to acknowledge eternal life when he talks about treasure in heaven or entering the kingdom of God. And, and, and the passage into eternity happens. You know how it comes? Through death. I don't want to spend a lot of time on death this morning because our church has experienced so much of it over the summer. I know that a lot of people are still dealing with the pain that death has caused. But I just want to say this about it. There is a statistic that is very constant that remains at 100%. It hasn't changed during my whole lifetime. It hasn't changed during your lifetime. In fact, it's 100% that every person is going to die. Ecclesiastes 8, 8 says this, None of us can hold back our spirit from departing, None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. Psalm 89, 48, no one can live forever. All will die. No one can escape the power of the death is inevitable. But then what? There is life after death. And the Bible is full of teachings that there is life. And there's only two places that life continues after death. It is heaven and it is hell. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this is it here in this life. And find yourself on the wrong side of eternity. Because once you do, it's too late. And this man, he wants to know more about how to get to heaven. Notice he's not trying to figure out how to go to hell. I don't believe I have heard of someone who needs to be told how to go to hell. I've heard people told to go there. 
I personally have never told somebody to go there. Hopefully you haven't either. Let me see a show of hands if you... No, no one. <laughs> Don't tell somebody to go to hell. See, even if you think they should go there, they probably have already figured out how they're going to get there, right? Or at least they have a clue about it. This young man, he's not asking about eternity in hell. He's asking about eternity in heaven in this stage of his life. He's still a young man. But in this stage of a life, he, he, he wants to know about heaven. He's concerned about his mortality, which is sort of strange because there are not a lot of young people who worry about that too much. They should. He is genuinely curious about this good thing that he wants, eternal life. So he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Believing that there's an eternity, he gets a chance to ask Jesus this question, saying, good teacher. And you might expect Jesus to answer this man differently than how he starts out like, that's a great question. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you ask. Or he could have turned to his disciples and he said, if only everyone else would be as interested in this eternal life as this man is, why, our work would become much easier. Those would seem very logical answers that he would give to the man's question that really is a sincere question. That's how Jesus answers. Why do you ask about what is good? Why, why do you call me good? As a, another version says, Jesus replied, There's only one who is good. If you want to enter, enter in life, keep the commandments. So what Jesus does, he asks, he answers the question by asking a question, Why do you call me good? The young man doesn't recognize really who he's talking to. He thinks he's just talking to a teacher, but Jesus is so much more than a teacher. He only sees him as a good moral man, a man of insight and, and depth, but he really doesn't quite get his divine authority. I think he's coming with him to Jesus, expecting to get a different answer than what he receives. What happens with this man so often happens when Jesus is dealing with individuals. It's throughout Scripture, Jesus looks beyond what is the surface. He's able to see the man's actual motives beyond the exterior, and he goes straight to the heart. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Natural response, which ones? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. He starts this list of the commandments. He starts listing them, but he starts with the backside of them, really. Not the first four, but 
The next six, he starts with, you shall not murder, commandment number six. And then he says, you shall not commit adultery. That's commandment number seven. And then he goes and you shall not steal, commandment number eight. And then commandment number nine, you shall not bear, give false witness. And then he goes into honor your father and your mother, commandment number five. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't talk really about the 10th commandment per se, but he summarizes it by going back and quoting scripture from Leviticus 19:18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in a different way of saying, thou shalt not covet, he sums it up and says, don't go after what your neighbor wants and has. Instead, love them, love your neighbor. Addressing how you treat your neighbor. Now, this man no doubt knew the Ten Commandments by heart. He knows the importance of keeping the commandments. And he says to those six that Jesus talks about, he says, I, All these I've kept, the young man said. Let me pause here just for a second. Jesus does something you or I probably would not have done. When he says, I've kept all of these, Jesus, we find in Mark's gospel, does something to really show compassion to him. Matthew doesn't pick it up, but Mark does. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You or I probably would have looked at him and says, hey, you think you're so good? Let me just show you. Jesus doesn't call out and shame him for saying, I've kept all these things. Rather, Jesus shows compassion on him, loves him. Which says to me a lot about how Jesus chooses to treat sinners. By loving them. He loves the lost. He loves the misguided. He loves those of us who don't quite have it all together yet. Who think we're doing a pretty good job of living life, but we're still missing the mark. Jesus loves the man who's doing good things. But now he's going to challenge him on the things he's not doing. And as Jesus rattles off these commandments, I'm sure the guy in his mind, he's checking them off. I did that one. I, I do that one. I, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen. I, I'm doing all those things. Rather, he asks the question, what do I still lack? Now, let me rephrase that to something of action. What do I still do? This guy's all about what amount of good can I do? I've been busy about being good, doing good. I expect that the answer is going to be that I continue in doing good. In essence, he's saying, how can I continue doing good, earning my salvation, my eternity. 
I really don't know for sure what this man's motive was and direction he's going. Quite possibly, he's kind of thinking about all the stuff that he's acquired. He's thinking, man, I, I, I have all this, and I, maybe I can take it with me. Whatever the motivation, it really shows that something is missing in his life. Tim Keller in his book says, Jesus the King describes the rich young ruler. Of course he was missing something because anyone who counts on what they are doing to get eternal life will find, in fact, that in spite of everything that you've, they've accomplished, there's an emptiness, an insecurity, a doubt. Something is bound to be missing. How can anyone ever know whether they are good enough? If you were to ask people today, most people, how to get to heaven, you'd probably come up with that kind of belief. When you say, are you going to go to heaven? They'll say, well, I hope so. I've actually had people say to me, well, I think I've done enough good stuff that God's going to let me in. I just hope my good outweighs my bad. George Barna shares this research. Seven out of ten or 69% of Americans believe that mankind is basically good. Of course, the Bible says otherwise. We need to understand, as Jesus answered, there is no one good except God. You know who that includes? All of us. Listen to how the Apostle Paul described himself. And I know that nothing good lives in me. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Does that sound like anybody you know? Don't say, me. It is me. Romans 3.10 says, as the scriptures say, no one, read it with me, is not even one. You probably can quote this verse, for everyone has sinned, we fall short of God's glorious standard. So you can pretty much get over the idea that people are good in their intrinsic nature. They're not. We're going to keep our two grandsons this coming week. Two of the four that we have, Cole and Emily, is going to escape down to... Well, you keep their kids and you call it escape. That's exactly what it is. Oh, Ollie Gray. He's just two years old. What a sinful kid he is. <laughs> Disobedient. Ollie, don't go there. You know what I'm saying. 
a little instant. Well, he's not so instant two-year-old. It's not even good. Here's the problem with that kind of foundational belief that people are good, like 69%. They're basically good. You know, the problem with that is this. If we believe that many people, what many people believe that I'm basically good, then I have no reason to trust in God. I have no reason for God. But the Bible says only God is good. Many people think, it, well, they're just basically good, and if I'm just good enough, I'll go to heaven. If I do too many bad things, then I'll go to hell. Satan has told that lie long enough. You cannot be good enough to get into heaven. Here's a basic biblical truth. Doing good things won't get you to heaven. And it really ought to have been a hearty amen on that. The man believes the effort he places in doing good earns him enough favor to get into heaven. Work hard, do good things, be successful at it, and that will be enough. And that brings us back to the sermon title, When Good is Bad. When you think that you have enough good to get to heaven, good becomes bad. Good deeds does not buy entrance into heaven. We're studying Romans in our life group this morning. I'm see if I can remember this. I, J.D. Greer's a study we're doing. He said it this way. When good becomes a God thing, good becomes bad. It's a pretty good saying. Let me say it again. When good becomes a God thing, good becomes bad. In other words, when you're trying to replace your good as being the main thing, you're in danger. You're endangering your relationship with God. Prophet Isaiah said this, words spoken 750 years ago. The young man should have known these. He's a student of the Old Testament. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, if this was all there was to this gospel story, our plight for attaining salvation would look pretty bleak right now. Plumb near impossible. But there's good news. Jesus did all the work on the cross to give us salvation. We don't have to work for it. Salvation was made possible because he paid the sin debt, giving us the free gift in spite of our sinful nature. Think about that for a second. 
of how freeing this really is. It takes all the pressure off of us to have to work out our salvation. I don't have to wonder, have I got, done enough good today to offset the bad that I've done that if I lay down tonight and for some reason I die in my sleep, I don't have to wonder if I'm going to go to heaven or not. That's freeing. takes that question of am I good enough off the table I have had I've had conversations with people about their relationship with the Lord say I think I've been good enough in a very sincere trying to be very sensitive to the situation would say oh you don't have to worry if you've been good enough or not if you've had Jesus come into your heart you can die in peace knowing he paid the debt don't worry if you've been good enough how freeing that is not have to worry is my good good enough Jesus took care of that I don't have to keep score I have the assurance of my eternity in heaven based on what Jesus did instead of what I have or have not done for him this is grace Scripture says, His grace is sufficient for me. What do I still like? Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor. He says, come follow me. There's a whole lot more in this story to look at. But I just want to skip down and without covering that particular verse and going into detail. To summarize, to say Jesus exposes the man's inability to perform perfectly in life by keeping all the commandments. He only dealt with the last six. He didn't deal with the first one that says, love the Lord your God with all your you shall not have any other gods before me. He didn't deal with those. But yet he was going to turn the table so that the man would have to realize that he hasn't kept those, that he was putting his wealth, he was putting what he wanted to do above and beyond what God wanted him to do. It was the man's, what was really in the man's heart that what he was really there was his self-reliance. And his lack of devotion to God. And then here's one of the saddest verses that's in the Bible. When the young man heard this, he went away. Sad. He puts on there because he had great wealth. 
walked away as broken as when he walked up to Jesus. Seeking something other than Jesus to give him the assurance of salvation. I can't help but wonder as the man walked away, not getting the answer that he would have been satisfied with, but probably still thinking, what am I going to do about all this good that I want to do? He just missed it. It's a case of good being bad. So as we're here this morning, and we allow this story to speak into our lives, first of all, let me ask you, where are you going to spend eternity? Have you made that decision? Have you gone before God and allowed Him to search your soul and say, I know there are only two places, and right now I'm not so sure where I'm going to go. Maybe it's because you've never placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Then there would be a question about that, and I can understand why. And just like Jesus looked at this man and showed compassion on him, Jesus looks upon us today and shows the same kind of compassion on us. We have a choice. Do we accept Christ or do we walk away? Please don't walk away. Please don't let that sad state of that man be your sad state by turning away from Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray as we contemplate this question, where will I spend eternity that would be emphatically able to say because of what Jesus did on the cross, he paid my sin debt and I know for sure that my eternity is going to be in heaven. I don't have to question. I don't have to wonder, am I going to be good enough? That with, I can settle the question today. Knowing that Jesus is the Savior of my life. There's one here, Father, that needs to make that decision. And I pray that they'll have the courage to ask Jesus to come into their life and save them. Maybe we're here today and we're struggling with another question of some nature that somehow this lesson has spoken into our lives. And pray also, Father, that we would be obedient, that if you're calling us to do something about where we are right now in relationship with you, will come and settle it. It's an invitation, Father, to come to this altar, to spend time with you, to 
to do whatever you're leading us to do, I pray we'll have the obedience, the courage to do what you're asking. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please stand. For I spoke a word you were singing over me. so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so Shadow, you won't light up, mouth, 
back to many of the funeral services that I've done over the years. And there have been some when I would sit down with the family I would ask them Especially if I didn't know the person who I was doing the funeral for. Do you know whether or not your loved one was saved? Now I've had some families who have said, I don't know. I don't mean to be judgmental by any means. I don't want, I just is with all love and sensitivity that I can say this. Please, don't go through this life if you've got a family member that you're not sure about their salvation. And when the time comes for you to sit down with a pastor, plan out their funeral service. Please don't say, I don't know about their eternal destiny. Somehow ask God to give you an opportunity to discover where your loved one is going. Don't wait. It is the utmost importance, the most important thing you can do for your loved one is to know where they're going to spend eternity. And in a very loving way, share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. While Lynn's making her way up here to talk about women's ministry, I want to bring to your attention 
that Friday Friends is meeting this week at 11 o'clock. So uh, ladies, if you're a part of that, come and join us at 11 o'clock here in the foyer. Uh, if you're not a part of it, come and join us at 11 o'clock here in the foyer. It'll be a good time. Lynn. Hey, so ladies, I just want to remind you about our retreat that's being planned for October. I know that seems like a long way away, but you have two more weeks to register. So if you'll find the registration form and the payment out there at the table, that would be great, either today, next Sunday, or the next Sunday. But we need to be able to plan on who's going. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be a beautiful time of renewal um, out near Smithville in, at uh, the retreat at Center Hill Lake. So you won't want to miss that. Um, there are so many things that the women are doing right now. He just mentioned Friday Friends, but we have two new fall Bible studies coming up for you to choose from. One is Wednesday night, which is the wisdom of God. Um, and you can see Cheryl Lewis about more information for that. There's sign-up sheets out there in the lobby. Uh, Jennifer Trammell is going to be leading Fight Back with Joy, and that will be on Tuesday nights. So... Uh, there's more information out there, and uh, these ladies both will, would love to uh, talk to you about that and give you any more information. And then don't forget that September 2nd, the first Saturday of every month, ladies, at 8.30, we are meeting for what? But first, Jesus. Jesus comes before coffee. Yes, it's the ladies' coffee morning at uh, 8.30. Join us. Uh, we always have a wonderful time for that. This will be our, our second one. We had a great time last month. And then September 25th, we have Soup with a Purpose. We're going to be doing a little part of ministry with our coat donations that night, so we need all, all our ladies to come. You can sign up out in the foyer for your favorite soup, your favorite bread or cracker, ladies. You can even do that. Or um, your favorite dessert. Just bring those and come on and have a great time on that Monday night um, here in the church foyer. Thanks, ladies. Thank you, Lynn. I'm not going to lie. I've seen some of you ladies early in the morning. I think you can do coffee and Jesus at the same time because, uh, yeah, yeah, and coffee. All right, hey, quick video from our men's ministry. We're going to launch right now. If you can watch the screens, have your attention, everybody. Galatians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The New Testament book of Galatians was written to new believers in the region of Galatia. They had been set free by the gospel of grace, but they didn't know how to live in freedom. When Paul finds out, he's not just upset, I mean, he's angry, but he points to his own changed life as a testimony to the transforming power of the gospel of freedom. His major concern for the Galatian Christians is that they had the gospel, they had it, but then it got diluted 
they added on to it. And so Paul keeps the main thing, the main thing, that no matter what else happens, he will only boast in Christ because he is the one who has set us free to live free. So when we die to ourselves, Christ lives in us and he sanctifies us. He makes us clean. He makes us holy. He sets us apart for his purposes. And trying to do that on our own, Paul says, take it from me, it doesn't work. And the metaphor he uses here, this fruit of the Spirit, it's what our lives naturally produce when we're living out of God's power rather than our own. It's the fruit that shows where our roots are. And Paul is letting the people in Galatia know that he has been down the religious road before, and it doesn't lead to freedom, it leads to slavery. It doesn't lead to transformation, it leads to frustration. It doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. But Jesus had set him free from all of that. And what the gospel of freedom did for Paul, the gospel of freedom can do for you. Man, stand with us as we close in prayer. This time next week, our students are going to be going to Tracy and Julie's for a back-to-school pool party. So uh, plan on that. Lord, we thank you for today, God. Let everything that we do glorify you as we go on our way into the mission field. We love you. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. Hi, good morning. This is Kelly. I want to take a moment to personally thank you for joining us for today's live stream. I hope today's message was encouraging and inspiring for you. You know what? We would love to hear from you. If you're here today and you made a decision for Christ, or maybe you just have a simple prayer request, we would love to know about that. You can text the word prayer to 615-776-1807. One of our pastors will be back in touch with you. Hey, if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to see you in person. You can join us for life groups at 9 a.m. or blended worship at 10 a.m. And let me say this, from your youngest family member to your family member that has the most years of life experience, we have a place for you. You know, I believe that we're living in unprecedented times. People all around us are looking for sources of hope. And you and I, we both know where that hope is found. We have a God who loves us and he wants to meet us right where we are. But you know what? He loves us too much to keep us there. So come and join us, whether online or in person. We would love to shake your hand, give you a smile, and do life with you here at Sunset Hills. Have a great week, everybody.